0: All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, along with Spence, who you heard from earlier. And, um, and uh, yeah, I guess there's two of us, but I don't know what I was going to say there. Peter's kind of a pastor here. And uh, Chris Thompson and uh, Jesse Splann are other three lay pastors, we call them. So, um, but anyway, nice to have you guys here. If it's your first Sunday, glad you're worshiping with us. Um, I think Peter said, though, it's kind of checked out for a second, that we are uh, in Genesis right now. Sorry, dude. Did you say that? I always listen to you, except today. Um, um, That we are in Genesis right now in a series. Uh, So if you want to turn your Bibles to Genesis, it's it's the first book of the Bible, easy to find. Uh, Pick up a pew Bible in front of you if you want, or your devices, that's great. Uh, Or your own Bibles, just turn uh, to Genesis 14. Just a quick recap on where we've been. Uh, If you're just joining us, if you're brand new to the Bible, um, Genesis means beginnings, so uh, it is the story of theological beginnings. A historical beginning. These are, these are real people, and we see a lot of genealogies in this book to show us this. This is not mythology. Uh, mythology does not have genealogies and not real names. These are real people who really lived and who worshipped a real God, who were called by a real God, who really sinned like us, and who were shown real grace like us. And so uh, this is history, but it's also theological history too. It's not everything's not written down. God was careful to write down certain things that were most important for us that we might learn about him. Uh, through them, and just be okay with the mystery. We just sang about the mystery, but God reveals a lot, but he hides a lot. We just have to be okay with that. Uh, we just don't know everything, uh, but we do know a lot, and it's, it's actually arrogant to say we can't know a lot, because God has told us a lot. So it's kind of this false humility sometimes we can have on both sides. There's, there's humility and, sorry, arrogance on both sides, uh, but there can be that false sense of humility on the one side to say, well, I don't really know. I'm not quite sure what this means or what God's saying here. And I think to say it's exclusive or explicit or we can know for sure is arrogance. And it's actually not. It's the opposite. Uh, it's humble to say, I don't know everything. I can't know everything without God telling me what it means and what it, and what it says here. And, and he's just speaking to me. He's revealing these things to me. It's humble to accept that and just say uh, it's on his terms he's speaking. And so that's what we've been doing in this book. It's kind of a little bit of a sidebar. But uh, there, to recap the whole thing, though, just in a few sentences, Peter this last week as well. After sin and death entered the world, and I mean all, I mean all kinds of sin and death, so not just a rebellion against God and, and sins like murder and, and sexual sin we see right away occur in early parts of Genesis, disobeying parents, telling white lies and everything in between, but also the curses that came. So when, when animals attack human beings or kill them, uh, you know when cancers arise and diseases and storms that tear down homes, Uh, These are all things that came into the world. They weren't there in the beginning. They came into the world through sin, through humankind's rebellion against God. But God stays strangely gracious and patient uh, towards humankind. He he does a lot of things to show that grace and patience uh, that we won't recap today for time's sake. But later in chapter 12, there's a big shift in the book. God identifies a man named Abram who he makes promises to. Uh, promises for him and his family and promises for the world. That blessing would come through him in spite of all the curse and the sin, in spite of the rebellion, that blessing would come through him to him and his offspring. And that's a nuanced idea. Whenever you hear that idea of uh, Abraham's offspring, Abram and Abraham are the same guy, to be clear. He changes his name later. But Abraham and his offspring is a nuanced idea. So on the one hand, offspring refers to Israel. Uh, Abram's physical posterity or his uh, physical descendants in the Old Testament who in some ways are blessed through him physically and spiritually. You read about that in the Old Testament. On the other hand, the greater idea here is offspring refers spiritually to those who live by faith because Abram was the man of faith. This is what the New Testament says about Abram, his faith-filled posture towards God when God said, leave your home and worshiping your false gods and come be with me in this new land. Uh, not knowing anything about that really having all kinds of question marks abraham abram says i'll go and so he lives by faith he trusts that god is a better land for him a better land of salvation and blessing and so um so on the other hand offspring refers to all who live by faith old and new testament so including those of us in the room if you live by faith in god if you trust god to, to deliver you from your sins through jesus christ you are an offspring of abraham literally and spiritually uh here according to the bible so, is, And on another level, then, too, and Peter talked about this. We won't talk about this, I guess, as much this week, but I should just say it um, because it's a big theme. On another level, his offspring ultimately is Jesus Christ. Uh, this is what Galatians 3 says in the, in the New Testament. The one that Abram resembles ahead of time and the ultimate agent of blessing, that those who put their faith in him specifically again are saved from their sins and in that blessed, not cursed anymore. So last week, Peter preached on uh, the story of Abram rescuing Lot, Lot is his nephew. So a lot of this middle section of, of, actually the whole rest of the book of Genesis, actually, from 12 all the way through 50, is basically stories, narratives of Abraham and his family. And sometimes really strange stories that you might think, is that really necessary to have in here? Today's going to be one of those as well, just to warn you. But last week was kind of one of those two where Abram rescued Lot from a sensual slavery, from oppression by these kings from the east that came over and were trying to reclaim land and all of this. Uh, and in many ways, talked about how that, Abram's actions, resemble Jesus's ahead of time. And so this week then, on the heels of that story, kind of a part two in a sense, we're in the same exact context. You'll see some, uh, some similar words here from last week. Abram meets, and this is going to sound like an, an, uh, an overstatement, but it's not. Abram meets one of the most enigmatic yet important figures of the entire Bible, And it's someone you may have never heard of before. Uh, You don't have to know him to be saved, just to be clear here. This is not like a salvific thing. But in terms of importance, certainly in Genesis and throughout the Bible, he takes on one of these important thematic threads in tying to Christ. And it's a guy by the name of Melchizedek. So uh, by translation, it means king of righteousness. We'll we'll come back to this. So uh, the sermon is called, um, oh, and I'm the one doing this today, aren't I? I'm going to forget this. So, Ansley, stand your toes. We're trying a clicker today. It's going to be a summer of testing. I'm not used to this. Ten years of not doing it, it's going to be tricky. But I do like the idea. So um, we're going to get a conference screen back there. And uh, so less of this, but yeah, bear with us. Okay. So let's read in uh, Genesis 14, 17 to 24. Melchizedek interacts with Abram just in a few verses here. I'll just read it and, um, and we will summarize it. All right, verse 17. After his return, Abram's return from the defeat of Kedorlamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. All right, so the the, uh, narrative strangeness continues uh, today. Uh, On the one hand, Abram has, uh, and this is the latter part of the passage, this final interaction with the king of Sodom. We talked about him some more last week, who, if you remember, fled instead of fought for his people. And, And Abram served this kind of functional king role by taking over for him and saving his people. They interact here again, and Abram's clear to say, I will take nothing from you so that you can't take credit for me being rich. So implied, God alone has made me rich. And before that, though, he has this very short, strange interaction with the king of Salem named Melchizedek. And all we really know from this story is, from right here in Genesis 14, we'll go elsewhere, but that Melchizedek came out with bread and wine out of nowhere. We, don't, we know nothing about this guy. He just shows up on the, the field of battle after the, the, as Hebrew 7 will say here in a second, the slaughter of the kings. It was a big war. It's Melchizedek that comes out of nowhere with bread and wine, and that he was somehow priest and king. And we'll talk about that later. It was not a, a kosher thing, actually, and a common thing, but he's breaking rules there. Uh, but then he blessed Abram, and he blessed God, and then poof, he's gone. And you see nothing else from him narratively in the rest of the Bible. <laughs> That's it. You know, so who is this guy? Uh, we, we see him quoted and referenced in Psalm 110 later in the Old Testament, a Psalm of David. And then uh, he's mentioned a lot in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And we'll spend most of our time in that section uh, today to get more clarity on this. But that's not narrative. That's theological commentary. So narratively, this is all we have. It's a handful of verses on this guy appearing literally out of nowhere and blessing, bringing bread and wine, and blessing God and saying, God is the one who helped you win your battle. And then, poof, he's just gone, and Abram goes on with his life, and his family in Genesis goes on, and we hear nothing else uh, after this. And so, when we ask the question, what does this mean, right, which we always have to with the scriptures, what in the world's going on here, what does this mean? Uh, fortunately for us, we don't have to guess at what this means, because the Bible has a cheat sheet, it's called Hebrews 7. <laughs> it's a big, awesome, still confusing, but just glad it's there, cheat sheet. Uh, for us to look to Um, and so if you want to turn there that'd be great too but this will be on screen Uh, Hebrews 7 though uh, connects Jesus to Melchizedek just going to lay my cards out the Bible's cards out here so it's very clear where we're going this is still confusing it's heavy biblical theology but intensely practical at the same time hopefully you'll see this Uh, but just to lay out the cards uh, he's going to connect Melchizedek to Jesus on a number of theological and uh, other kinds of levels as well and talk about how Melchizedek is an early representative of the New Testament ahead of time, or this way that God's going to covenant with sinners through Jesus Christ later. Uh, Melchizedek is a glimpse of this, and also just by his name and by some of his actions here uh, as well. So a lot of layers uh, to to this. But he's going to contrast this with law. So Melchizedek is an example here of a priest king who brings grace, who brings bread and wine, who blesses. And he's going to tie this up with Jesus and say, not only is that like Christ, but also you see a, a glaring absence of any law here. And how uh, this is then not conditional, but this is a new type of unconditional covenant that uh, is different than the old system that is later instituted through Moses. And I'll try to summarize some of that. So we're basically taking a buggy ride right through the whole Bible today. <laughs> we kind of always do, but we're especially doing that today. Uh, a lot of interesting, dark, uh, not dark as in bad, but just heart, you know, not, a, not very exposed sometimes or read much by us corners of uh, of the old testament all right so let's read hebrews 7 1 to 19 this will kind of functionally serve as our main text for today this again is the new testament a new testament author writing to the new testament church to encourage them uh elsewhere in this book he says they're weak-kneed and droopy-handed so they're very very weak and depressed and discouraged christians very beaten uh beaten beaten up by sin wondering if god is still there uh, entertaining heresy and things about God that they shouldn't. And so uh, Hebrews is this big, long, biblical, theological essay or discourse on Christ and who, where he came from, how amazing he is, how different he is from different characters and better than the Old Testament, how he contrasts with the Old Testament and how that should really encourage us and, and empower us to live presently so and give us hope, ultimately. So let's read Hebrews 7. Jumping in kind of mid-argument here, he talks in chapter 5 as well about Melchizedek. We don't have time for all of that today, uh, but we'll just take 19 verses here, kind of the main thrust of the argument. Uh, Verses uh, 1 here. 1 to 3 first. All right, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is by first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right, so we'll stop there just for one second. Already we're seeing some explicit comparisons to Jesus here. Uh, He was, in speaking of Melchizedek first, but tying this to Christ, He was priest and king. So king of righteousness by name, that's what Melchizedek means, and king of peace, Salem uh, is the word for peace, and so he's also king of Salem, which means king of peace. He's priest of God most high as well. And Jesus is ultimately all of these things explicitly in the New Testament. He brings righteousness, that means perfection and salvation and blessing, uh, to those who believe in him. He He brings peace. If you were to epitomize the gospel, like the New Testament authors say a lot, you would say grace and peace from God our Father and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. So peace is this huge element. We've talked a lot about it already actually in Genesis. It's come up uh, quite a bit. We don't have peace with God because of sin. But we have these priests already here, this enigmatic priest who's calling himself a, a priest of God most high and a king of peace. Well, how can there be peace in this world? We have spit in the face of God. And yet, there can be peace? How can, how can this be? There should be questions at this point. This shouldn't make sense. There should be tensions and large, fat question marks on the top of our pages of the Bible that need resolution. How can this be? If God is just, how can there be even a mention of peace without being smited? But there is. And God is patient, and God is promising, and God is whispering, and God is hinting, and God is giving dreams of a future reality where there will be peace again with him. And so what's what's strange here then, just and I highlighted some of these things um, towards the bottom, is that and I mentioned this before I think that Melchizedek is both priest and king. And that's strange. In many ways, a foreign thing, especially as we get later in the Old Testament, we see it was a this is not, not kosher, it was not 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 a law-filled thing to do. If you were a priest, that was all. You were never a king. If you were a king, you were never a priest. They really came kind of from different tribes, and we'll we'll get into that. Uh, in in a little bit. And so uh, Melchizedek breaks with this pattern, uh, essentially, as does later on King David, who is king, uh, also does some priestly-like things and is not condemned for it. And so he comes later in the story, uh, who was a direct uh, descendant, or ancestor rather, of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the ultimate one of these. He is both. He's not just a priest and he's not just a king. And he's not just a prophet, I want to apply that one too, but he's not just a king or a priest, he is, he is both. And so that, that tells us he's a different kind of both, a better kind of king and a better kind of priest. He's fulfilling both offices. All right, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is here, in terms of explicit comparisons, just in the first few verses to Jesus, he, Melchizedek, is without father, mother, or genealogy, having no clear genealogical beginning. And in this, he says explicitly in verse 3, he resembles Jesus, the Son of God, who also has no beginning. He wasn't created. He always was. And he has no end of days. Though he died, what do we believe as Christians? What's the cornerstone of our faith, right? He's alive. He has no end of days. He's forever. And so he, he ministers and serves forever as this priest of God most high. Bo- both really do. And this is not saying that Melchizedek is eternal. It's saying that the way he's recorded in Genesis 14 indicates he has no genealogy or father or mother. He appears out of nowhere, and he seems to have no... Like we've seen a lot in Genesis already, uh, deaths marked, you know, so-and-so lived, had all these kids, and then they died. Remember all those genealogies? None of that here from Melchizedek. Just appears, gone, done. Poof, gone. We have theological commentary, but, but genealogically and narratively, nothing. So in that, narratively, he resembles... Uh, the the son of God. In fact, there's so much resemblance here on this level, it's led many to believe that Melchizedek uh, is what we call a Christophany, which is a a pre-incarnate spiritual appearance of Christ himself in in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm mentioning that just to say that there's so much correspondence here and similarity that people kind of go there. I don't think that's the case, though, just to lay my cards down. I, I think Hebrew says resemble. Not he. he was Christ beforehand, but he resembled. and so. But I still share that to say it's an understandable, misguided but understandable connection. If someone were to say, is this Jesus? He's so much like him. Is this Jesus beforehand, before he was Jesus of Nazareth? Is this the Son of God, this Christop- Christophany, this appearance of him uh, before his incarnation? Uh, again, no to that, but understandable. So anyway. All right, verse 4, let's keep going here. Read the rest of this through 19, and we'll, we'll come back. See how great this man Melchizedek was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, just stop right there for a second, Levi is a great-grandson, one of the great-grandsons of Abram, who served as one of the tribes of Israel, uh, from whom the priests came. So he's going to talk about that uh, now. And through whom the Old Testament, with with all of its laws, was mediated. So verse 5 again. Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people, that is, from their brothers, other Israelites. Through these also are descended from Abraham, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, speaking of Levi and all of that. But in the other case, Melchizedek by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abram, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Aaron was the first high priest, a Levite himself, the brother of Moses. For when there is a change in the priesthood, this is huge, note this, we'll come back to this. When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from whom no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, quoting Psalm 110. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. All right, so clear as mud, right? Here we go. Uh, So what I want to do is uh, bring you guys through uh, the, the theological logic here as best I can in summary fashion. And we'll make some concluding comments uh, after that. But again, I'd encourage you guys to go back and read this more yourself. There's a lot more he has to say after this section, and bef- like I said, before in chapter 5 as well, that connects some more dots. Um, so basically, what he's saying, going back to the first part of this second section here, is Melchizedek uh, is up here is greater than Abraham. Uh, it says, Hebrews 7 7, again, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, and the inferior pays tithes to the superior, which is what you see, that's the pattern you see in the Old Testament. So you never pay tithes it's to, the, to the inferior. And so the tribe then of Israel called Levi, and this is my Levi guy right here, best I could do. I like this guy better, but and this guy's pretty cool. This is not so good, but um, still, this is my Levi guy. Uh, what he's saying here is the tribe of Israel called Levi, from whom all the priests of the Old Covenant or Old Testament were descended... And through whom the Old Testament law was mediated was himself paying tribute through Abram to Melchizedek because he was in the loins of his ancestor, it says, when this whole tithe thing, Genesis 14, was taking place. Following so far? (laughs) I hope so. All right, so Melchizedek then, what, what he's saying then, Melchizedek is greater not just than Abram, but all those who flow from him, including Levi, and including the Old Testament law, which came through Levi. So Melchizedek is greater than and other than all of, all of these things. Is that an overuse of the dot pointer, by the way? Is that too much? I kind of like this. So this is making you dizzy. This is my first my first shot in a while. All right. So that, then after all this is set up, he moves in for the theological kill, essentially, and drives it home. He says, Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. Jesus is after the order, quoting Psalm 110, like David, kind of, and David was saying this. It's another story, but after the order of Melchizedek, not just in the sense that he's king and priest and king of righteousness and peace, like we talked about before, but also because he's greater than Levi or apart from Levi, tribally. Jesus was descended from Judah, a completely different, another one of Abram's great grandsons, a different tribe, a kingly tribe, but not a priestly tribe. David's tribe, not Levi's again. And so, in other words, Jesus is not, he, he's trying to help us to see biblically, theologically, Jesus is not an extension of the Old Testament priesthood uh, on every level. They, they might point to him and resemble him in some ways, but tribally, he's not. There's a break, there's a difference here. And so to see this in a couple of charts, there's different priestly lines that represent different covenants. There's the old, uh, old Testament priesthood and covenant system that's represented by Levi in the first line there. Abram eventually gives birth to Levi, a great-grandson, and from Levi comes the law, and it mediates people in God. And so if that's, if that's a new thing for you. There's two covenants of the Bible, and the old one we're no longer under. But it was a time where God said to Israel, keep these commandments, or, and don't do these things, basically, or else. Or else. There will be judgment. There will be punishment. You will not remain in the land of blessing with me. It was conditional. At least understand that. There's a conditional covenant of works and an unconditional covenant of grace in the Bible. There's two. That's why we have Old and New Testaments. Testament and covenant means the same thing. Your Bibles are hung together that way. So the first one is about works. The second one's about grace. The first one gives way to the latter. It points ahead. It's intended, as as Hebrews has just said, and we'll talk about this, it was intended to fail. It was built on weaker, useless promises. The the hopes were not, because it was built on us, being righteous before God, keeping law. Uh, it, it, It was built on God kind of drawing near through human priests who themselves were imperfect and through animal sacrifice, but it could never really work out. If you read the Old Testament, it's one big fat story of Israel failing Underneath that kind of covenant. When it was on them, things went south. When it was on God, even in the Old Testament, when the New Testament's whispered and prophesied about and hinted at ahead of time, things succeed. So the New Testament and the, the New Testament promises trump what's going on in the Old System. And that's a huge, crude summary of the Old Testament, but that's kind of the storyline that that we see there. And so in the charts here then, uh, Melchizedek, this is a different line then. To look back and to make these connections that the author of Hebrews is, is a different thing. It's saying this is not Melchizedek leading ahead to Judah and, and David and ultimately Jesus. That is not saying that on the bottom, this is the, what we cannot do. We cannot do this narrative. We cannot do this theologically. You guys may think, well, how would I ever do that? I didn't know these guys were people yet. But you, but you might later. And you might do this functionally in your mind. We cannot connect Abraham and Levi, and the law, and Jesus on one neat little thread. Hebrews is saying it's because of Melchizedek, it's impossible to do it. We cannot do it, theologically, narratively, and then practically. And so what does this mean? Actually, one more verse here too. Uh, Romans, you can see this in the New Testament in more of a prepositional statement. But now, speaking of Jesus, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. So see, laws up here, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, different lines. And this righteousness actually saves us. It's it's a different kind. It's not the righteousness that is the law. There's two kinds. There's a righteousness that comes from us by law keeping that never works, it never succeeds. Then there's a righteousness that comes out of heaven from God apart from law. Though he goes on to say, the law and the prophets testify to him. They can point ahead to him, but it's apart from it. It's a different kind of way God's covenanting and promising to and showing grace towards sinners. There's, there's differences. They're not the same. And God's, God's telling a story by contrast here. It, it's, he's not messing up. He's not saying, oh man, plan A failed, shoot. And then just conjures up Jesus in his mind. It, that's not the point. The point is Jesus was always the plan A. Uh, it's just part of the plan was to show how much it wasn't about us so that we'd uh, receive the ultimate savior, the ultimate righteousness from God alone, from Him that we that we yearn for grace out there from Him, uh, and not look for not look for righteousness in here, in our hearts. And so, so what does this mean then? Uh, it, it's you know, it, it's saying He, Jesus, serves as a new type, like I've been saying, or or to put it another way, Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus Christ is greater than the law, and He represents that new way that God covenants with us and. And so, again, Hebrews eleven to 12, 7, 11 to 12 says, Now, if perfection, so think about moral perfection. If moral perfection, if your righteousness had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, in other words, the law, because he says here, for under it, people received the law, if it was possible for the law and moral commandment to make you perfect, then what need would there have been to look for another priest after the order of Melchizedek? We're kind of jumping around here, but what he's doing is he's looking at Psalm 110, which is written a long time after Genesis. And he's saying, well, if that's chronologically written after, and if David's writing down this, these things about a new kind of priest, a new kind of king, a new kind of this Melchizedekian individual coming through his line in the future, ultimately referring to Jesus, why would they speak of that one if the first one was working? The first one failed. So there was need for not just a tweaking of this first one, a better, distinct, different one, built on better promises, built on promises of grace, built on Christ himself, built on the power of an indestructible life, built on the resurrection, totally apart from us, totally apart from what we bring. When we get in the middle of it, it just gets all mucked up every time. What we need is a new kind. And so then verse 12, for, for when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. So what's that change in the law? Jesus is a priest, a Melchizedekian priest, on the basis of the resurrection. So th- this goes back to seeing how Mel- Melchizedek in Genesis 14, no mother or father recorded, no genealogy. He seems like he, li- he lived forever, even though he didn't, probably didn't. Um, he, he, it's written down that way. And so that's the kind of priest he is. He's associated with the statement he lives, as it says, this resurrection idea. And so Christ then is a priest on the basis of that, on the basis of a resurrection, not the law. And he mediates a covenant built then on grace and new life rather than conditional commandment, like the old Levitical system uh, from Levi and that, the old law through Moses. Verse 18, again, for on the one hand, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Speaking of the law, for the law made nothing perfect. It's set aside, you guys, do you see? There are parts of your Bible that are set aside now. Not that we rip it out. It helps tell the story. But we're no longer under it. It's a covenant that has been set aside for something better and distinct and different. Not a progression from it, a clean break a new kind of covenant. Pick up in verse 19. But on the other hand, a better hope, see? Better hope is introduced through which we actually can draw near to God. Because through the law, you can't really draw near to him. You're too imperfect and dead like me. But a better hope is introduced when Jesus comes into the world, when he sheds his blood for our sins, when he rises again, when he removes all the barriers, when he gives himself in love. And he says, through me, the ultimate high priest, the better Melchizedek kind, who is also king of glory, I will fight all your battles. And I will fight the battle of you being distant from your creator. I will slay that problem in your life. Draw near to him with boldness and confidence as you're in sin. Because I'm that strong against those things that normally kept you away. And so, so as we ask this then, this is where the contrast gets more clear. As we ask the so what then, I, I, I want to pose it, I'm going to pose it from the negative side. I know you're all in different places here. We're all in different spots. Part of this is testimonial because part of this is just from my wicked prone to wander heart on a daily basis. So at least it's for me, but I'm guessing for a lot of you. problem is when we ask the so what, Christians do not functionally live sometimes, a lot of times, as though Jesus is descended from Melchizedek. This is where biblical theology gets intensely practical. Because you've all been confronted with this now. The question is, what are you going to do with it? (laughs) And me, Right? We can't unhear it. Shoot. But we have to ask, do we believe this or not? And I think the problem is we don't, we might, we might believe, we don't, we might not put words like this to this, but we all, if you're a Christian, you do believe that Jesus is a is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Whether you realize that or not, uh, w- when you came and looked at the man on the cross, you saw Jesus as your only condition, your only law, your only mediator, your only sacrifice, the only way you get in. If, if you didn't, you're not a believer. That, that, that's, that's the first step in becoming a Christian is seeing Jesus as the only way in. And when you're saying those things or believing those things, you're believing Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You're thinking not like an Old Testament covenanted Israelite. You're thinking like a New Testament Christian in that moment. So you believe that. <laughs> Maybe you didn't know you believe that, but you do. But functionally, how do you live? That's a whole other matter. Functionally on a daily basis, how do you live? I think what happens is Christians, we, we do this. We live as though there has not been a change in the law. That Jesus is actually descended a little bit more from Levi or partly meaning that we think and live as though Jesus came into the world to tell us how to live better lives and to conditionally covenant with us and to conditionally covenant us and God together. Meaning, maybe we believe that he has saved us, but now it's up to us to keep the law, like Israel did, to maintain that salvation. And all of a sudden when we're there, we've uh, become a traditional Roman Catholic or a Mormon, but not a biblical Christian. This is not anti-good works, but it is about an unconditional, you bring absolutely nothing to the table except your faith type covenant. That's what this is saying. Through the lens of this weird, enigmatic, seven-verse, never-see-him-again figure in the Old Testament. Jesus is like him. He's descended from him theologically more than the Old Testament priests and therefore the law. But the Bible says, back to the positive side, Jesus is that new kind of king after the order of Melchizedek. Actually, going back to, uh, to Genesis for a second, Genesis 14. In 14, 18 to 19, if we just go back there for a second, you know, when we look at Melchizedek there, we're not only seeing a picture of Jesus generally, but his posture towards sinners and a picture of, of the new covenant like I've been saying. So going back there, the essence of, this is where it gets really good news, the, the, the essence of our covenantal relationship with God now through Christ is like a priest king. It's like what's happening in Genesis 14. So we're kind of taking the, the big scenic route loop here, right? We're back in Genesis 14 then looped around big, heavy biblical theological stuff in Hebrews 7, then way back to Genesis 14, and we're saying, okay, Melchizedek is Jesus. I mean, like, he resembles the Son of God. So then, what else do we learn in Genesis 14? His posture, his activities, our Christ towards towards you and us today. So the essence of your salvation, in other words, with God now through Christ is like a priest king bringing out bread and wine to you and blessing you. Period, end of story. That's it. If that offends you, that's good. You're probably actually understanding it well because you don't bring anything. That's good. The the gospel is a rock of offense. If If that encourages you, good. You're probably understanding it. Because it's not about you. It's about freedom. It's about a God who went to the, the, the uttermost to save you and me from your sins and, and from death. What makes Christ better here then is Christ's bread and wine here, uh, and this is fast forwarding back to the New Testament, Luke 22, the last supper before he dies on the cross, he institutes communion. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine vaguely. Jesus brings out better bread and wine, his body and his blood. See, this is what he's bringing to you. This is, he's Melchizedek in here on the cross. He's bringing out his body and blood and blessing you. And saying, that's the only way you get to my Father. This is the only way you get in. Remember me. Remember what I'm doing here. You will be inclined to forget, you will be inclined to see him more as a descendant of Levi who saves you but then says, be good or you'll lose it. Untenable, biblically. Untenable. If we're careful readers of the Bible, if we take Hebrews 7 seriously, it's the Bible itself is saying untenable, inconsistent, different tribes, different kinds of priests, different covenants represented. He's Melchizedek. And so he says here to his disciples, he took the bread, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this, eat, drink in remembrance of me and my, my body, my blood. He took the cup of wine and said, I got cut off here, but he says that this is my blood poured out for your transgressions or your sins. So he got very clear in what was going to happen on the cross a few hours from this moment. That's what he's bringing out. That's the blessing he's bringing out. Genesis 14 also just shows us, like, Melchizedek shows out of nowhere, initiating the blessing of Abram and not responding to Abram's righteousness. Like everywhere else in the Bible, it says, we're saved by grace, not by works. Is Abram bequeathing Melchizedek to come? Is he asking for him? Is Melchizedek responding to his goodness and his righteousness? Or how about this? Is Melchizedek a taskmaster here? Does he ask anything of Abraham? Anything? No. He blesses him. He he celebrates him. He says, God loves you. He fought your battles for you just a second ago. He's your champion. He's your victor. He's done everything. You fought in that battle? You think that was you? Kind of, but not really. That was God who made it possible for you to fight. Read the rest of the Old Testament. I mean, every time Israel wins, God does crazy stuff to show them that He did it, they didn't. He did it, they did not. So Melchizedek, like Jesus, are not taskmasters. You know, when Jesus, back here in uh, Luke 22, it's the same thing. When Jesus has that Last Supper, He's not bringing things to do, He's bringing bread and wine and blessing. Period. It's the same with Melchizedek. The Bible connects these things. This is the covenant we have now with God. It's by grace, not by law. And so Melchizedek represents that uh, beautifully. And and, and I will say this, to put it this way, I've said this, but. Melchizedek represents your relationship with God right now way more than two stone-cold tablets of law requiring obedience could ever do. Christian. Do you believe that? I'm speaking to Christians right now. If you're not a Christian, just check out. That's fine. Christians. Hebrews 7 is written to Christians. Not non-Christians. Christians, Christians, a church that forgot all of this stuff. Kind of makes you humble, right, when you realize, dude, they were, he was kind of harping on them for not really understanding Melchizedek. (laughs) You know, it's like, of all the guys, well, I, that's, I mean, I, there's some other stories maybe we kind of accept and just know a little bit better. They're a little longer, you know, a little clearer. But he's saying, Melchizedek, he actually talks about, I think it's in, in chapter 6 at the beginning. He's calling them, you know, you're, you're still like infants as Christians on a little bit of milk. we got to kind of graduate you to more food and mature you in the faith. And part of that is understanding Melchizedek. So non-Christians. It's the same with you. When you you think of Jesus, are you thinking of a taskmaster and a lawgiver and just another one of those ways to get to God that all the other religions of the world basically have a version of? Or is he a different way? Of the tribe of Judah, a son of David, a king and a priest, after the order of Melchizedek, a priest based on the power of an indestructible life. So now the resurrection stands in between us. Now the resurrection defines us. Not law, but the law of the resurrection, you could say. And, and so that's where, and I'll just end with this, that, that, that is where, this, this is another sermon. But I'll just say it. Um, to, I, I guess, yeah, to Christians. But again, if you're not a believer, this is the gospel too. What power do you draw on to kill sin? and to fight for joy. When, when you live your life as one of his children, what do you think about? You know, what, what's in between you guys? Uh, it, it, anything? Um, I was t- Peter and I were talking, with oh, Spence I think too, but before Peter's sermon last week, and I'll just say it testimonially for me, I mean, I, I think we were saying this. It could be a dream, whatever. Um, P- the sermon last week, I mean, just just the idea that God resembles Abram, a guy who would go and just care for a lot like that and fight for him? I mean, so just let me put it this way. Like, when I'm sinning, I don't know if the first picture I get of God naturally is a God who's running to me to rescue me versus a guy who's sending back just kind of watching. What's he going to do? You know? Oh, bad move. Shoot, didn't see that one coming. You know, or whatever. Maybe not that silly, but just still, sitting back. When you're in sin, when you're trapped, when you have doubts, when you're confused, when you're dead, is God sitting back and watching you, waiting for you to act, and then to conditionally respond, if it's the good way, blessing, if it's the bad way, death and judgment? Or in our sin, as we're sinning, is he actively running towards us? Is he entering the field of battle with bread and wine? and blessing. And that, that's the ultimate way he does it right there on that cross. And, and this is why the Bible talks so much when, when sins talked about, you know, and, and Paul says something like, you know, and I want to know the power of your resurrection in Philippians 3. Not I want to know your law really well so I can be a good person. I want to know the power of your resurrection. That's a distinctly Christian, New Testament, new covenantal way to think. I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. I believe he rose from the dead. If we don't believe that, what in the world are we doing here, right? I mean, that's, that's foundational, basic stuff that we actually believe Jesus rose. It wasn't mythology. It wasn't a story. He actually rose from the dead. He came out of a tomb. And so we believe that and we believe we have that power inside of us. If that's more the, the thought process, the way our, our mind goes in the throes of sin, in the throes of depression, in the throes of discouragement and doubt, it's a very different track to take because basically what we're doing there is we're, we're worshiping through the Melchizedekan priest in that moment and not the Levitical one. So it just becomes extremely, this is why he's writing this to the church, you know, that again, weak need, droopy-handed, or maybe it's the other way around. Droopy-kneed, I forget. Something with hands and knees. But they're weak, they're discouraged, they're depressed. Struck down. And his, his answer, he has this audacity to suggest that deep theological, biblical theological preaching is the solution to their problems. And community, they might preach that to one another on a regular basis. Forgetting what Jesus is about. Living as though we're dead when we're actually alive. What are we doing? Running to Jesus, not the law. I mean, because that's where we're all kind of succumb to and go back to. I mean, all these things, um, thinking we're better than we actually are. What we draw on as Christians is we draw on preaching, on objectivity, on truth outside of us, on the resurrection, and on the fact that God really does destroy our enemies, you guys. He really has today. And it's not based on how much you feel that that's true. And I hope that's good news to hear that too. It's not based on how much you feel that's true. You just have to hold on to the mustard seed and say that's, I, I'm, I'm ascribing to that with one corner, one little facet of my heart and hold on for a dear life. Um, there it is. That's the gospel. I don't care where you guys are today. It's the same thing every week. What are you going to do with it? Do you believe it? You gonna apply this to the way that you live and think, repenting from your old way of living and trusting in the Melchizedekian priest or not. Uh, And it's the same for me. This is how the word of God confronts us with this joy, this gladness, this freedom. Jesus has come out to the field of battle and given us the bread and the the wine of his body and blood and said, eat, partake, and remember. Rejoice, sit at my feet, rest at my feet, and be saved. So I invite you all to do that today, and especially if you're not a Christian, uh, to do that in prayer now. Let's pray. God, thank you, for, um, thank you for this passage of Scripture. And we've said this before about Genesis. There, there are parts we're not going to understand fully, and that's actually a really good thing. It keeps us humble. Uh, we, if we understood everything perfectly about the Bible, that would basically say we're God, and that's not a good thing. So thank you for the mystery. Thank you for the, just the intrigue. Thank you for the surprises we get in the Scriptures uh, that counter the way we'd normally think. Uh, thank you for two testaments in the Bible that Melchizedek and Levi represent different aspects of this, and, but Melchizedek just being this priest king, this new way, this, this unconditional, resurrection-centered, grace-giving, bread and wine-harboring priest king who comes to save, not, not based on what we do, but based on just strangeness, just appearing out of nowhere, loving us, wanting to save us. And We look at the man on the cross and we see the ultimate one, the Melchizedekan priest who brought his body, his blood out to die for sinners. And the call is to believe and to trust that if I believe in that man, he will forgive me my sin and God, will, God through him, because he's dying for me, he'll remove my sin. Whatever it is, gone, so that we can have boldness to approach the throne of grace. And uh, so I pray that would be a belief system for us and a practical reality for us this week, wherever we are spiritually, that there would be some freedom there and um a distinct way in which we live our lives that thinks a lot more about the resurrection and the cross um, than about two stone-cold tablets of law that could never make one perfect as hebrews is so crystal clear to say but on the better hope introduced we draw near to you god now through worship and response Uh, be with us as we do that in christ's name amen amen let's